Hi and welcome to the Journalism Salute. I'm Mark Simon. In each episode, we'll talk to or about an interesting person or organization related to journalism. The intent is to show that journalists are not the enemy of the people. Thank you for listening. Anita Hopschneider is a staff writer with the nonprofit Honolulu Civil Beat in Hawaii. As Anita notes on her website, she writes watchdog stories, investigative and explanatory deep dives, features in breaking news. She's covered a variety of beats, including politics, housing, healthcare, and the environment. And in 2022, she became the beat's Pacific Regional Correspondent as the organization has expanded its coverage area. Hi, Anita. Hi, thanks for having me. So your story begins at the U.S. Commonwealth of the Northern Mariana Islands, which many people, myself included, can't blindly identify on a map, as you noted in a piece in the Columbia Journalism Review. Can you tell us about the path of your journalism career from there to where you are now? Sure. So, yes, I was born back home. We call it the CNMI, although when I say the acronym out here, like everyone's like, huh? I was born and raised in on the island of Saipan in the U.S. Commonwealth of the Northern Mariana Islands, and I lived there until I went to college at Harvard. So it was, that was a pretty big culture shock and change, as you can imagine. And then after that, I got really lucky and got an internship at Honolulu Civil Beat through the Hawaii Society of Professional Journalists. I was able to work there for a few months and then got a couple of different temporary journalism gigs one internship at the Wall Street Journal and one legislative staffing job at the Associated Press, a legislative coverage job, I should say. And then I got hired back at Civil Beat full time in October 2013. And I've been there ever since. What, what was the story of your path to Harvard? Well, I think that I got lucky with having some really encouraging teachers. One of my high school teachers was from Boston. And so he really encouraged me to apply to Harvard. And I didn't think I would get in. It was definitely a um, huge shock when I did. And so, but I, I got really lucky with great teachers and also my parents having the means to send me to, to schools that could kind of give me the preparation to be able to compete. It's, it's in some ways I tell kids it, it really is, I mean, for lack of a better word, a crapshoot, <laughs> like getting in at those, those levels. And so I, I just felt really, really lucky I was able to. Was there anything from your upbringing that lent itself to journalistic? That's interesting. When, when I think back as growing up, when one of my like vivid memories is just seeing my mom read the paper every day and, and always talk to me about what she was reading in the paper. And you would think in a small community, like Saipan is home to only about 50,000 people, that there wouldn't be a lot going on necessarily, but there actually was and is. Even in these really small island communities, there's lots and lots of politics, a lot of issues related to economics and immigration. And so it was always really interesting to kind of read and learn. And so I, I think I, that's sort of just how I got interested in issues of, of public policy. And it wasn't until kind of later on that I realized that I was, I was mostly interested in journalism. All right. So now you're at the Honolulu Civil Beat. Can you explain the purpose of what that organization does? So Honolulu Civil Beat is a nonprofit news organization here in Hawaii. It's been around for more than 10 years now, which is kind of crazy to say, because I joined as an intern in um, 2012 for a few months. And so it had only been up and running for a couple of years. And so the idea is to do journalism as a public service and to cover public policy issues. So our beats are education, 
the healthcare, the military, a lot of government reporters. We really, we don't cover sports. We don't cover fashion and food. And over the years, we've really grown. We used to just have like a handful of reporters and we have, now our staff is approaching 30. So we've, we've really grown over the years. But our mission has um, stayed pretty consistent in terms of trying to do the kind of journalism that makes a difference and makes Hawaii a better place. And just to kind of set a foundation for some of the things that we're going to talk about, looking at your recent bylines, they include a story on the recent burn pit legislation, how COVID hit some Pacific islands recently for the first time, which I was fascinated by, the introduction of a resolution apologizing to the Marshall Islands for nuclear testing, Tonga getting internet access back after a tsunami. Uh, Those are some of the stories that you've worked on recently. What are you currently working on? Oh, I'm actually, one of the stories I'm working on is through my Center for Health Journalism Fellowship. So this year I am one of the fellows on their new racial equity fellowship that they've created. And so I'm looking into chronic disease and, and diabetes among Native Hawaiians and other Pacific Islanders. So yeah, but I always have a lot of different things going on because Civil Beat, we do try to publish fairly frequently. And so every week you'll see a combination of two or three stories from each of our reporters. And so the stories you just listed, I mean, they some of them were were pretty quick hit turnarounds. And sometimes when we get opportunities like through this fellowship, we have more chance to do deeper dives. And another of the things that would be a more extended set of pieces, you're the second journalist that we've had had on who was recognized with a Breaking Barriers Barriers Award from the Institute for Nonprofit News. This was for your coverage of the pandemic in some of Hawaii's uh, hardest hit communities. One example, you talked to families that can't oblige the wishes of loved ones in terms of where they wanted to be buried, a combination of humanizing a story and stating the facts. Another is about how the Hawaiian government failed to help communities of Pacific Islanders. What was your process for this series and how do you feel it turned out? So that actually was another series I was able to do through a separate fellowship from the Center for Health Journalism. I was a 2020 National Fellow, and that was a really great opportunity to really focus on the disparities that were emerging in the pandemic. It's really interesting. If you go back to April 2020, I was remember listening in to a press conference about the pandemic and the director of the health department here was asked, actually, my colleague had asked on my behalf about what he was expecting in terms of racial disparities in Hawaii. And he said that he didn't think that there would be any disparities in Hawaii's pandemic because he said most people are pretty similar socioeconomically, except for maybe Native Hawaiians and other Pacific Islanders. And it was a really striking comment Obviously, I'm paraphrasing, but the what, what I really took away from that and what I was hearing from other people was that the state wasn't really prepared for the fact that the virus would really hit some communities hard. And I think part of it is Hawaii is really multiracial. Communities are, uh, you know, really different demographically than on the mainland. And sometimes there's this perception that because we're so diverse and that that there isn't a lot of disparities. But even within races, different ethnicities within the Asian community, different ethnicities within the Pacific Islander communities really have different socioeconomic statuses and outcomes in terms of education and healthcare. And so if you, you know, really look deeper at the data, it, it really made a lot of sense that there would be a lot of disparities 
in the pandemic. And so what the fellowship enabled me to do was to look more deeply at, at what those were and what was happening at a community level. So in one of the stories I did was about how the states, a lot of people really perceive that the state failed to be proactive in um, addressing. So one of the stories I did was about how the state failed the Pacific Islander community here. And you know, that's really a harsh um, word to use. And I think that there are a lot of people in the state who did a lot of good work during this time. But as a whole, this, the policies you know, that, that were implemented at the time were perceived to be really making it difficult for Pacific Islanders to access the help that they needed at this time. So for example, there is a community of uh, migrants from a region of the Pacific called Micronesia, who you know previously had had access to low-income health insurance in Hawaii, but under our current governor, they had removed funding for that because they were saying that it was too expensive to provide health, low-income health insurance for this community. Well, lo and behold, when COVID hit, this community was one of the hardest hit. And because they didn't have access to health insurance at that time, a lot of them didn't have ongoing relationship with doctors, ongoing trust within the medical system. And I'm saying this based on my conversations with members of the community. So these are what community advocates and organizations were telling me was the, the conditions that were in place when the pandemic hit. And so then there was this process of trying to build trust and trying to hire people from these communities to work at the health department who hadn't worked there before and try to do outreach to these communities. But it was all happening in this moment of crisis. And so it wasn't until six months into the pandemic that Hawaii created a, an, a contact tracing group that was dedicated to reaching out to Pacific Islander communities and was staffed with people who spoke these languages. And so it really... Um, it felt important at that time to kind of highlight that gap because in other parts of the country, there were places with the infrastructure that was needed to respond to some of these disparities. So for example, in Oregon, you know, they have a lot of people in government in different places that are in different offices and agencies that have jobs that are dedicated to community outreach, diversity, equity, and inclusion. And so I was talking to a Chukis community leader in Oregon who was telling me that when the data emerged that his community was getting hit hard, he automatically got calls from, you know, the diversity and equity people in the governor's office, the people who worked on those issues in uh, the mayor's office, people who worked on those issues in the uh, health department. I mean, he was getting a lot of people who already knew him, who were reaching out and saying, what can we do to address this? Whereas in Hawaii, a lot of the those kind of community relationships hadn't been built beforehand, in part because some of those positions don't really exist here. And one thing that was really interesting was we, Hawaii did previously have a Office of Health Equity, but you know one of the reasons why it was also defunded under our current governor was because there's this perception that, oh, we're a minority-majority um, community, and so that this isn't needed. And so I think one of the things that was interesting to write about during that time was about how even in communities that are really diverse, that doesn't mean that there aren't disparities within communities of color. In, oh, oh, no, go ahead. A lot of times the conversation about racial disparities in other parts of the country are about, you know, white communities having privilege and resources and communities of color not. But I think that what's interesting about reporting about this in Hawaii is that it's a little bit more complicated and that the resources are not necessarily white and black, as someone might say. After the reporting of this, did the government do anything 
Yes. And I, I think that people ask, oh, what was the impact of your reporting? And that's always hard to say because there's a lot of dialogue going on. I wasn't the only person, you know, writing about this. And there were people in government and outside of government who were advocating for more research for, for this community. But it was really cool to see some of the responses and reactions to to the pieces. So I remember a few months later, the Department of the Interior put out a press release about a million dollar grant to help Pacific Islander serving organizations respond to COVID. And they they linked to one of my pieces about the disparities in hospitalizations. And so it was cool to see that organizations and agencies with resources were, you know, starting to provide resources. And in some places, so some sometimes it was clear that they were reading and, and paying attention to my work. Now, you've also done some much larger exposés over the last five years, one on the late senator from Hawaii, Daniel Inouye, and sexual harassment allegations against him, and another uh, different piece on sexual assault and the Catholic Church. Uh, which was a staggering piece. Uh, we'll link to it in the show notes. How long do pieces like that take to report and what's your process for doing it? Those are both similar pieces in terms of dealing with trauma and trauma from sexual assault and sexual misconduct, but they were also very different. So for the piece on sexual assault in the Catholic Church on Guam, I got a grant from the Pulitzer Center from Crisis Reporting, which at that time had a special funding stream dedicated to reporting on religion. And they were able to fund me and uh, my colleague, Corey, a photographer, to go to Guam to write about this incredible number of uh, lawsuits that were being filed against the church there. And I was particularly interested in that because having grown up on Saipan, which is essentially a neighbor island of Guam, they're in the same archipelago, but they are different politically. I was familiar with the the community on Guam. And I knew that most people there grow up Catholic. There are indigenous Chamorro people like me. And they, in a lot of ways, because of many centuries of colonization, the Catholic religion is sort of intertwined with the, what people consider indigenous traditional culture. And so the idea that there would be such an outpouring of allegations against the church was really concerning and just surprising in a lot of ways. I know that Elsewhere, there have been so many different instances of journalists uncovering these allegations against the church or people coming forward. But but out in the islands where the church has such a huge, plays such a huge part in the community, it was really interesting and and still surprising to see this come out. And so I was able to fly there. I think I was there for about a week and a half. And I conducted a lot of interviews with different people who had filed these lawsuits, including going with a couple of them to the sites of where their abuse had occurred. And it was a really, you know, really challenging interviews. It was my first time really reporting on trauma. And because of the grant, I was able to get some time when I came back to actually report and write. And so I would say that particular piece took about two months from start to finish that felt really luxurious because I'm used to, you know, having to write fairly quickly. And so the fact that I was able to, to get that funding and to get that time for my editors to do that reporting was, was really helpful. And we also con- re- recorded audio and, and published a, a podcast episode about that experience. And so that was really about that story. I mean, and then in addition to that, the, you know, you asked about my story about uh, Senator Inouye. So that that kind of came out in the wake of the Me Too movement. Somebody had 
uh, posted on Facebook about their experience being sexually harassed by the late senator. And so that took a bit of time to get in touch with that person and get to learn their story and also try to speak with other people and to the extent that we could corroborate and, and verify what it is that they were telling us. And so that one I was, I kind of worked on in between other pieces at the time. And eventually what we did was because he had passed away, that also kind of raised some questions about whether it was fair to report on this. And so we, we had to kind of deal with different questions, you know, journalistically about what was, what was ethical and what was okay to report about somebody who had passed away. Uh, I think that most of the people that listen to this podcast, along with myself, have seen the movie Spotlight, which featured the Boston Globe Spotlight team and the process by which they did a story on the Catholic Church, both the reporting, the actual reporting of the story, and having to kind of handle dealing with it uh, mentally. And I'm curious about both of those for you. First of all, with the, the process, this being your first story with trauma at the center of it, at this level, what was it like trying to get uh, your sources to trust you? No, I got lucky with that reporting because I got in touch with an attorney who was representing a lot of the plaintiffs and he was able to connect me with them. And so the actual trust building part was easier than I expected because they were in the space where they wanted to tell their stories and they were eager to get the story out. And so being able to connect with them and have them open up wasn't as much of a challenge. I think what was a challenge was the kind of mental and emotional strain of kind of hearing these stories over and over again. And I think when when I was there reporting, I think I, I listened to more than 10 victims tell their stories. And that was maybe too many in retrospect. I know after I finished the piece, I was only able to include a handful of the, of stories in the piece. And I regretted kind of spending, asking people to kind of t tell me so much about their traumatic experiences without being able to guarantee that their stories would be in the piece. Although it was still useful to be able to get a, a larger picture of, of what was happening and what had happened. It, it, I think that it was also difficult, I think, for me to just kind of have to that I was going to say, it was also just difficult from a mental and emotional standpoint. I think as a journalist, you sometimes have, you're, you're listening to other people's trauma and you really empathize with them because they are talking so honestly and so openly and, and you really connect with them. And so to do that over and over, it did give me a glimpse of what some other journalists whose jobs involve a lot more reporting on trauma might entail. And I was really appreciative for resources like the DART Center, where they have resources on journalists reporting on trauma. And I joined a Facebook group about journalists reporting on trauma that also had some resources. I also talked to my therapist about my emotions as I was, I was listening to those stories. It really was, I think, a, a difficult experience, but also a really good one course, whatever challenges you have listening to these stories is nowhere near as traumatic as the actual people experiencing them. So I'm not, not in any way trying to equate it. I'm just saying as journalists, sometimes you do feel more strongly than you anticipate because you connect with people so much. And so having access to those resources was really helpful. And the reporting on your part is certainly very uh, impressive. 
so now you're in this new beat of where you're covering multiple Pacific islands that I would have to imagine is pretty challenging just between American Samoa, Tonga, Guam, and so forth. How do you establish a kind of like, I guess, a foothold there? Yeah, so this beat is actually fairly new. So I did do that piece about Guam, I think several years ago, I want to say five or so years ago. And at the time, Civil Beat was starting to approve stories about the Pacific region, but it would be a, a couple of stories here, a couple of stories there. And over the years, I've always thought it would be really wonderful if we could create a consistent beat where we were consistently reporting about these communities. And so that happened over the past year. And I was really happy to find out recently that I would be able to kind of step into that role. And so it's fairly new. And I'm, I'm, I am figuring it out is basically the answer to that question. I'm trying to make contacts with people, different communities, you know, different uh, countries. It helps that there are, there is a fairly large Pacific diaspora in Hawaii. So there are people here who are citizens of the Solomon Islands or citizens of Fiji and who I can call up and ask uh, questions about, you know, what's happening. But I think it's going to take time to build those relationships. And we do hope to do some on the ground reporting at some point this year, but it is challenging, not just from a budgetary standpoint, but also because so many Pacific countries are still dealing with COVID. I mean, many of them shut their borders when the pandemic hit because they had such limited healthcare infrastructure and staffing that they knew that the um, virus would be really devastating to them if it hit them. And so at this point, a lot of other countries in the world, like the US, are kind of moving beyond the pandemic and, and going back to normal in a lot of ways. But for some of these countries and territories, this is the first time they're really getting hit with COVID is through this Omicron surge. And so they may have a lot of lockdowns, they may still not be allowing people in. And so figuring out how to to do reporting on the ground is you know even harder because of that. And so for the most part, I've been relying on getting to know people over the phone on Facebook. A lot of people spend a lot of time on Facebook and post a lot of information there and and are more easily reached there, especially if they don't have really great Wi-Fi where they are. Oftentimes, they'll have enough Wi-Fi for Facebook messaging. Why does this kind of work appeal most to you? Why does it appeal most to me? Yeah. Why does journalism appeal to you? I mean, I feel so lucky to be able to work in journalism because when I was graduating from college and I was trying to figure out what I was going to do, I remember thinking journalism was the only thing I could really imagine myself doing day in and day out when it came to working like Monday through Friday, nine to five, although it's definitely not a nine to five job, but it, it, I love the creativity of it. I love the urgency of it. I love the fact that you're always learning. I, I, if people are listening to this because they might want to be journalists, I, I definitely think that it's worth pursuing, even though it can be a really, really difficult industry to break into. And it can be, you know, a bit demoralizing at first, especially with the, the low salaries in the beginning. And but even though many places still continue to have low salaries, there are also, I think, a growing number of opportunities in journalism through digital media and nonprofit news to be able to, to do the type of work that you want to do and not necessarily at the low salaries that maybe are really predominant in other parts of the industry. Is there an area in which you uh, feel like you could offer someone uh, advice based on the different experiences that you've had? 
for for aspiring journalists, I would recommend to research a lot of scholarships and fellowships and funding opportunities and grant opportunities. If you are a freelancer, there are many grant opportunities available to do journalism that involves travel or investigative work. You know, they can be competitive and it can be, you can take a couple of tries to get them. But I think that there's actually more funding out there than than, than you realize. You know, I always think I, I know what all the grants are and then I discover a new one. I just discovered another one the other day about investigative reporting for freelancers. And if you're a student, there's also funding and grants and scholarships to go to conferences or to do internships. And so I think everybody recognizes that this is an industry that privileges people from higher income backgrounds. And I am privileged. I, I did have family support when I was looking for like internships and I and so I think that is something that like I recognize and so I'm I'm I want to be honest about that but I also think that there are a lot of organizations that are trying to rectify that issue and provide funding and support for places and so if you are thinking like oh no I can't afford to do an unpaid internship I think there's a lot of pressure on organizations to pay better for internships and to make sure that they aren't unpaid and so it, it will still be difficult I'm sure but it's not impossible if it's something that you you really want to do and I would also reach out to different organizations I'm a member, a member of the Asian American Journalists Association and there are a lot of organizations similarly that really want to help people from different backgrounds come into journalism and and so if you, you let people know that you are trying to get into journalism and if it's a financial issue that's preventing you, I think that I would like to think that people will rise to the occasion and, and really try to help. You mentor Indigenous journalists through the Pacifica Journalism Fellowship. You're also the founder of the Asian American Journalism Association, which you just mentioned, their Pacific, Pacific Islander Task Force. What does that group do? So the AJA Pacific Islander Task Force came about because myself and some other Pacific Islander journalists were interested in helping AJA help address its mission of um, helping Pacific Islander journalists. So AJA is, is um, dedicated to Asian American and Pacific Islander journalists, but there aren't that many of us on the Pacific Islander side. So we wanted to see what we could do to bring Pacific Islander journalists together and, and provide some resources for them. And so one of the things we've done is help update AJA's style guide to include terms related to Oceania and the Pacific region and Pacific communities, because before then there were no terms related to Pacific Islanders in that style guide. We also are working on setting up a scholarship for Pacific Islander journalists and also working on doing different events dedicated to Pacific Islander journalists. So we've been participating in the annual AAJA for the last couple of years and also holding different sessions, like helping uh, Pacific Islander journalists with, with data reporting or with other skills that they, they hope to, to build. Or even just in terms of networking, we've had a couple of Zoom events that are just networking oriented. And so it's we're a pretty small task force. There's just like like five of us on the task force, but we are hoping to, over time, build community and, and help make sure that people who are Pacific Islanders in journalism feel like they have the same access um, to resources and support that other journalists do. It's a group of people that we probably don't think of often here on the mainland. 
Is there a journalist or journalism organization that you're not affiliated with that you'd like to salute? Yes, I think the Uproot Project is one I would recommend. They are dead dedicated to helping journalists of color do environmental reporting. They recently added a new fellowship that I recommend people look into, and they um, seem to have a lot of resources. So that's what I recommend. Very good. Anina Hapschneider, a staff writer with the nonprofit Honolulu Civil Beat. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Honolulu Civil Beat is the only news outlet in Hawaii dedicated to public affairs reporting. Their mission is to engage and educate the community on important public issues through in-depth reporting, explanatory and investigative journalism, analysis, and commentary. Visit them at civilbeat.org. Welcome to Journalism History, a podcast that rips out the pages of your history books to re-examine the stories you thought you knew and the ones you were never told. I'm Terry Finneman, and I research media coverage of women in politics. And I'm Nick Hershaw. And I research the history of New York sports. And I'm Ken Ward, and I research the journalism history of the Great Plains and Rocky Mountains. Find the Journalism History Podcast at journalism-history.org podcast, and wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Thank you for listening to the Journalism Salute. Please let us know what you think of the show. You can find us on Twitter at journalismpod, and you can email us at journalismsalute at gmail.com.